You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on July 29, 2018. A reading from 2 Kings. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep it quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you, before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, The water was parted, to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So what comes to mind when I say the word vocation? Job. Job. That's what most of us think about. You think about a vocational school, which is a school where you go to get trained in how to do a job. Um, Sometimes we call our jobs our vocation. But do you know where that word comes from? It comes from a Latin word, vocare, which means to call or summon. To call or summon. And it's a word that we use in the church for longer than we've used it in the secular world to refer to God's calling on someone to do something. So most often we hear about it in the, in the case of people who are called to ministry, who are called to do what I do, to be a priest in a church, uh, to preach the gospel, and so they'll be trained for that vocation, and we talk about a vocation to that, or we talk about a, a vocation 
to be a monk or a nun in a monastic community. But that's what the word vocation means, not just uh, priests or monks or nuns, but it's a, a word that we mean to talk about God's calling to each of us in each of our lives. Did you know that you're called by God? We talked about that a few weeks ago in a general sense. Everyone who's a Christian is called by God to be a part of his kingdom, called to be his adopted sons and daughters, children in his kingdom, members, citizens of his kingdom. But there's a more particular sense in which we talk about this vocation, this vocare, this way that God calls us or summons us, that talks about the the particular ministry that he's made us for. And we see lots of examples of this in the scriptures for lots of different kinds of ministry. We certainly see it for pastoral ministry, for people who do what I do, but we see it also, especially in the case of prophets, in the case of kings. We saw a calling of King David to be king over Israel. We saw uh, Moses get called to be a prophet when he's wandering in the wilderness and he meets God in a burning bush. We see the call of Isaiah described in the scriptures, and we see the call of Jeremiah, and we see many others. But listen to God's word to Jeremiah. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So before Jeremiah was even formed, before his body had come together, God was already in the process of creating him for a purpose. God knew who Jeremiah was. He knew what he intended for Jeremiah to do. He called him from before he was born to be a prophet to the nations. And while this is a particular calling for Jeremiah for a particular vocation, the prophetic ministry, I think the same thing is true of all of us. Before you were born, before you were even formed in your mother's womb, God knew you and he had a plan and a purpose for your life. And guess what? He still does. Each one of you has a calling. Each one of you has a purpose that God has carved out for you. And so when we think of our vocation or our job as just a job, as just work that we do, it can kind of deflate us because our work can seem meaningless. But when you think about your job, your work, as a calling, as a vocation, it takes on this deeper meaning, this deeper purpose, because you know that you have been sent by God. Now, sometimes there are just jobs that we need to get done. And that's okay. Sometimes those are jobs that we do so that we can fulfill our vocation in another area of our life because we need to pay the bills, we need to get food on the table. Sometimes the work you do doesn't have to be all that inspiring or enlightening. You can just do work, but you need to have a sense of God's vocation in your life, whether that's connected to the work you do for pay or whether that's connected to some other area of your life some ministry you do in the context of the church or in your service in the community, God has a vocation for you, and you need to understand what that is, you need to embrace it, and you need to fulfill it, because that's a part of being a fulfilled person in God's kingdom. God has a calling, a vocation, for each and every one of you. God has a ministry carved out for you, and you need to figure out what it is through discernment. And you can do that in the body of Christ. We can help one another understand who we are, who we were made to be. And a part of that is discerning our gifts, like I was just talking about with the kids. In Ephesians, in Corinthians, and other places, Paul talks a lot about the church as a body. 
And all of us as different members with different functions. And so some of us are little fingers, and some of us are right ears, and some of us are left nostrils. We all have a function to play in the body, and the body needs every piece of the body working together properly and appropriately to fulfill the mission that God has called us to. And that means you are important in this church, in this community. You have a role to play, and your role is vital and essential to the proper functioning of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. So think about that for a second. What is your ministry? What is your vocation? Today we hear about Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet. That was his calling. We don't have an example of his calling story. That's not recorded. We just get this sort of abrupt beginning of Elijah's ministry, which is kind of classic for Elijah because he was an abrupt sort of guy. He, uh, he didn't pull punches. He wasn't into small talk. He just went right for it. You know, he was a hard hitter. And Elijah did not have an easy ministry. Elijah's calling was to go and challenge the king, Ahab, and the king's wife, Jezebel. You've probably heard her name before, probably even more than Ahab, because we use her name as sort of like a derogatory term in our culture today. Oh, that person is a Jezebel. That means they're difficult. It means they're not a, a pleasant person. It means they're, they're, uh, they're adversarial, and they're probably even just a little bit evil when it comes down to it. That's a Jezebel, okay? So this is the people that Elijah was particularly called to go up against, the king and the king's wife. And these are pretty powerful people. So when you go up against pretty powerful people and you say hard things to them, it usually doesn't go too well for you, right? And yet that's what God called Elijah to do. And I think the gritty character that God gave Elijah just goes along with the function he was called to perform. Because you can't be a softy and have Elijah's task. You have to have some pretty thick skin, you have to be pretty fearless, and you have to have this deep gut sense that you know what God has called you to do and you're just going to go for it, regardless of what happens. And that's what Elijah did. And this all culminates in a classic story, one of my favorites in the Old Testament, where there's this, this prophetic duel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And this was really the core issue of his ministry uh, preaching against Ahab and Jezebel. Because Jezebel uh, was someone who had brought these foreign gods into Israel and had influenced her husband to start worshiping these gods as well. And because he was the king, because he was influential, lots of people were worshiping these other gods, and particularly this god Baal. So, the story begins. Elijah goes up against the prophets of Baal, and he says, we're going to settle this right now. We're going to show you which is the one true god and which is a false god. And so he challenges the prophets of Baal, there were like more than a hundred of them, to build an altar to Baal, to sacrifice an animal on it, and he was going to do the same, and then he said, whichever altar has the sacrifice consumed by fire coming down from heaven, that will show which God is true. And so he says, you guys go first. So the prophets of Baal build this altar and they sacrifice an animal on it. They're dancing around it. They're doing all kinds of things trying to call Baal to, to come and consume this sacrifice and nothing happens. So Elijah starts mocking them. He says, well, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's relieving himself in the bathroom kind of gross, I know, but he's mocking them. That's what you do when you mock someone. Nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's turn. 
And so he, he goes for it. He builds the altar. He sacrifices the animal. He digs a trench around the altar. He pours water on it, so much water that it flows down over the sacrifice, over the, wa- the wood for the sacrifice, over the altar, onto the grass, into the trench, and it fills up the trench. There's no way this is getting lit on fire. And then he calls on the name of the Lord God. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. So who won? The Lord God, of course, because he's the one true God. And so Elijah goes on and he slaughters all of the prophets of Baal, every one of them. Kills them all. Now, how do you think that set with Jezebel? Do you think that went over pretty well? No. So Elijah's on the run. He runs up into the mountains, and that's where he hears that still, small voice that we often hear talked about. That's the context of the still, small voice. He's on the run. He's hiding in a cave. He's fearing for his life. And God speaks to him out of that. But think about how he must have felt. He felt like he was the only one left. He felt like he was alone in his ministry. He was tired of going up against people that wouldn't hear him, wouldn't listen to him. He was at the end of himself. And so he cries out to God from that cave. And this is what he says to God. Or rather, what God says to him. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe not like that. Maybe no one's seeking your life, but have you ever felt discouraged like that? At the end of yourself, like you just can't go on? We all get that place sometimes. Because life can be hard. And the things that we've been called to can be significant challenges. And we can get burned out on those things sometimes. And that's where Elijah was, as he's hiding in this cave, listening for God's voice. And here's what God says back to him. He says, Go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. He's at the end of himself, but God is swift and he's merciful, and he says, Go and anoint Elisha to be prophet in your place. I'm sending you relief. I'm giving you rest. And the very next thing we happen right after that is he goes straight for Elisha. He finds him and he calls him out of the fields. He was plowing the fields with oxen. He calls him to come and be prophet in his place. There are one or two more prophetic episodes at the end of 1 Kings uh, before this, this transition that we saw in 2 Kings today. But for all intents and purposes, God had provided that relief. Elisha was there to be his assistant. And that's what it says in the scriptures. Elisha became his assistant. And then in the context of the story today, we see not just Elisha, but the sons of the prophets. Who are those guys? Well, we don't actually know. But they were a collection of people around Elijah and Elisha, supporting them, 
in some way. Maybe they were writing down what they said. Maybe they were providing for their needs. Maybe they were a school of prophets themselves. We don't know who they are, what they were doing. But remember how Elijah felt? He said, I, even I only, am left. And God's response to him is, no, I've left 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And so he finds the help and support of Elisha, but also these sons of the prophets. God provides relief. Sometimes we get to a place where we need to step back from God's call and rest. Sometimes we need a break. Sometimes it's a temporary break. Sometimes it looks a little bit more like retirement, where you step back from something permanently. Both of them are acceptable, and we see examples of both in the scriptures. Today we see Elijah retiring, and he gets a pretty cool retirement. You know, instead of a gold watch, he gets a chariot of fire to carry him off bodily into heaven to be in the presence of the Lord. That's a pretty good retirement, if you ask me. But Elijah gets to retire. We see other examples, though, where God just calls a leader to raise up some other leaders to help them in their ministry. Paul had helpers. Moses had helpers. Moses' father-in-law saw how stressed out Moses was because Moses' job, in part, was to sit as the judge over all of Israel. And so every little dispute that anybody ever had was brought before Moses to make a decision. Can you imagine if everybody in America, anytime they had any kind of small little problem or dispute, came knocking on your door and said, hey, can you settle this for us? He did nothing but that all day long. And his father-in-law said, this is not sustainable. You need helpers. And so Moses appoints sub-judges and sub-judges under them and sub-judges under them so that these small matters can be brought before these other judges before they make their way to Moses. He was still a busy guy, I'm sure, but he had a lot more help. So sometimes God calls us to retire. Sometimes he calls us just to raise up some helpers. But either way, we all need help sometimes. We all need relief. God told us that we needed a day of rest each and every week to step back from the pressures of life and to just give him glory. We all need rest. It's a part of who we are. And so that's why it's important for us all to be training our replacements and always be working ourselves out of a job. Regardless of what you do, whatever your ministry is, you should always be trying to work yourself out of a job, finding someone to replace you and take your place. The problem is that that doesn't sit well with us sometimes. And there's a couple reasons for that, and we're going to go over some of them, okay? So first of all, why are some reasons why we don't train others to take our place? First of all, we don't think they can do as good of a job as we can. That's, that's probably number one. We, they, no one else can do this job as well as I can. I have this particular gift, this particular talent and skill. God has made me for this. This is my job. Nobody can do it as well as I can. These are called controlling micromanagers. Have you ever worked for a controlling micromanager? I see some nodding heads out there. Yes? A controlling micromanager has you do a job and then they do it over because you didn't do it well enough. Or they they pay you and you sit in a chair and you do nothing all day because they won't give you any work to do. Who likes to work for someone like that? I'll admit, I've been controlling at times. I do this myself sometimes, and I think there's a piece of that in all of us. But we have to watch out for that. Because what's at the root of that? 
At the root of that is pride. That's the sin that keeps us from passing things on to others. It's pride. It's saying, I'm so good that nobody else can do it as good as I can. We need to watch against that. We need to be raising others up. Which brings us to the second thing. We don't want to take the time to train someone so that they can do it as good as we can. Have you ever tried to teach children to do chores? Have you ever tried that? Sometimes it's kind of difficult to teach children to do chores because at first they can't really help you all that well. When a child is first learning how to use a knife, that's a scary thing, okay? Chopping up vegetables, you're watching out for fingers, you're watching out for other things. But the cool thing is, and I've seen this in our old family, especially this year, our oldest children have stepped it up and they can do some amazing things because we've been teaching them and training them for a lot of years. My wife in particular has been doing an amazing job raising up our kids to do things, useful things, real work things around the house. And it's awesome. And it frees us up to be caring for the younger kids. It frees us up to do other things. It takes time to train someone to do a job well. But it's a worthwhile investment. And so we need to push against that temptation as well and say, yes, it might take a little bit more time at first, but there's a longer end goal in mind to raise up someone to do this job with me. Because ultimately, there's a bigger picture. And we need more than just me. We need a lot of people doing this job. So once you train others, everything else will move along much more smoothly. A third reason Sometimes we enjoy the work that we do and we don't want someone to take it away from us. Sometimes we really enjoy the work, the ministry that we do, we don't want someone to take it away from us. In my former job, I was director of communications and publishing, and that meant uh, that I did publicity, I did marketing, I did communications, I did photography, I did graphic design. Basically, anything that could possibly fall under that label, uh, that was me. And there was a camera in the drawer of my desk and I had one student, two student workers to, to do a little bit of part-time stuff for me. But basically, I was the guy. And so I took all the pictures, and I designed anything that needed to be designed. I did it all. And I enjoyed those things. But as my responsibilities increased, as I had more to do, I couldn't accomplish everything I needed to do. And so my, my boss encouraged me to hire some more staff to help me with some of those jobs, to take some of that off of my plate so that I could focus on other things. And I did that, but it was hard. It took me a long time to finally do the hire once I was commissioned to go hire someone because I really enjoyed doing photography. I really enjoyed designing stuff. I didn't exactly want to hand those things over because those were parts of my job that I enjoyed. But when I did hire people to fill those positions, they became very competent photographers and both of the people I hired in that position were much better graphic designers than I was. And the quality of our publications increased significantly, and everything was much better because of it. And I still got to do photography and design. I just didn't do as much of it as I used to. Sometimes God calls us into a new phase, into a new thing, and we need other helpers to come along us and take some of those pieces. And sometimes that does mean giving up a little bit. But when God has us give up something, he always calls us into something else. Another reason is that our identity is sometimes wrapped up in the things that we do, as is often the case with a calling. And when our identity is wrapped up in something that we do, we fear losing our identity in giving something over to someone else. 
Because if my job is my identity, then I, I won't have that identity anymore if I give that job to someone else. If this does happen, rejoice. Because it's a good thing. Because God is calling you to something new. God's call to you might change over the years. You may have different callings in different sections of your life. And if God is calling you out of something, he's also calling you into something else. Because there is no retirement in the kingdom of God. We don't actually retire until we climb on that chariot of fire and go off in... Well, no, we don't get to climb on the chariot. That was, that was Elijah's special, special thing. But we all eventually die. We find our rest there. And until that point, God has a call for you. He has more work for you to do. And there's plenty of calling to go around in the kingdom of God. There's no lack of calling. There's no lack of things to do. And so if God is calling you to give something up and hand it over to someone else, it means he's also calling you into something new. And he may give you a a season of rest to pray and listen and discern what that is, but there's always something new for you. One final reason might be that we don't want someone to show us up. We might fear that if we hand over a job, they might do it better than we did. Because we all want to feel important. We all want to feel like the things that we do have value. And so if I hand something over to someone else, they might do a better job than I did. They might leave a greater legacy than I left. And that could be scary. Because it, it, it might seem to reduce my significance. And this is a really important one. Because this goes back again to the sin of pride. To say those things, to think those things, to feel those things, is a prideful place to be in. And it's better to focus on the grander vision of God's kingdom. Because it's not about me. My performance and what I do and my calling and my vocation is not about me. It's about God's kingdom. It's about expanding the borders of God's kingdom into new hearts, into new lives. And so if someone does a better job than me at my job, I hope I have the grace to rejoice that they've done a better job than I have, that they've built on the foundation that I've laid, and that they are doing things, reaching into new lives that I could have never reached myself, because God's kingdom is bigger because of it. It's a hard thing to get to. It's a selfless thing. We have to put down our pride and take up God's cross. But it's significant for the kingdom. And if you have that attitude, it's actually a place to rejoice. Because the seeds that you've planted, you get to see bear fruit. Maybe someone else is doing the picking, but you get to see them bear fruit. And that's an amazing thing, to know that you in some way had some part of that at some point in the game. It's not about us, it's about God's kingdom. So when you hand over a job to someone, cheer them on. Encourage them. Give them a good foundation to launch from. I think most parents, when they look at their children, hope that their children do better than they did in their life. We all want to lay a good foundation for our children and pass it on to the next generation, and hopefully they have a better life than we did because of the foundation that we've left for them. And may that be true in our vocations as well. May those who come after us do better than us. May they plant more seeds. May they pick more crops. May things take off and flourish because it's not about them any more than it's about us. It's about God. It's about his kingdom. It's about his fruit.
when Elisha is talking to Elijah just before Elijah gets carried off in his chariot. Elijah says, what can I do for you? And Elisha says, give me a double portion of your spirit. Give me a double portion of your spirit. Now, what was meant by that, there was a a place in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy that talked about when a a husband had a number of different wives and had had children with a number of different wives, the oldest child, the oldest son of the first wife was to receive a double portion of the inheritance. Regardless of whether that was the favorite wife or not, regardless of of, uh, that person's status, if they were the firstborn to that husband, they were to be given a double portion. And this was Elisha's inheritance. This was Elisha's inheritance. He was to receive a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He was to receive, to be the one to carry on that ministry. And when you look at what Elisha did, he did the same types of miracles that Elijah did, but he did them with more grandeur, more splendor, more flair, Elisha, in a lot of ways, could be seen as someone who was a greater prophet than Elijah. And yet, when you look at Old Testament history, Moses and Elijah are clearly seen as the two great prophets of the Old Testament. Elisha's name isn't listed among them. And when you see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he shows Peter and James and John his glory, who is standing right next to Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Think about that for a second. These are the two great prophets. And it's not Elisha. Elisha carried on Elijah's ministry. He did things to a greater extent than Elijah did. But Elijah is still the spiritual father. And when we get into the New Testament, who is our spiritual father? Who is the one that comes before us in ministry? It's Jesus himself. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospel of John. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Did you hear that? Jesus said that, Look at all the stuff that he did, the walking on water, the raising people from the dead, the healing of the sick, the casting out of demons. Greater things than these will you do because I am going to the Father, Jesus says. Do you think he's worried about that? Do you think he's worried that you're going to show him up somehow, as if that were even possible? No, he delights in it because it's his kingdom, it's his glory. As followers of Jesus, we are not greater than Jesus, just like Elisha is no greater than Elijah. But we are called to do great things in the name of Jesus. We are called to build up his kingdom and to pass the mantle of faith from generation to generation, to pass the mantle of ministry from generation to generation, that they too might do great things in the name of the Lord. And so when we put it in that perspective, in that context, let us rejoice in our spiritual successors. Let us pray for them and bless them that they might do greater things than we have done. And let's pray that God's kingdom would expand 
and that we would get to continue watching God's kingdom grow. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to follow you. We thank you for the vocations that you've called each of us into, the particular ministries and gifts that you've given us. We pray that you'd help us to use those gifts for your glory in the service of your kingdom. We pray that you'd help us to find the ministries that you've called us to. And we also pray, Lord, that you would help us to train and raise up others to take our places, that your kingdom might continue to grow and expand, and that the faith would be passed down from generation to generation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.